Well, today we continue our series called Goodbye God, and we're getting close to the end. This morning we begin by looking at the last of the three objections that those who call themselves or identify themselves as either an atheist or an agnostic would have concerning their departure away from their Christian identity and embracing an identity, a personal identity of agnosticism or atheism. There are today one out of four Americans who claim that they are either an atheist or an agnostic. And out of those 25%, two-thirds of them, two-thirds of them at one time identified themselves with Christianity. And when asked why they left or no longer identified themselves as Christians, they told those that were compiling the data that they could no longer trust the Bible to be the Word of God, which we've addressed. They no longer trust the integrity of the church, which we have addressed. And their third reason was because today culture seems to reinforce a secular worldview that pretty much has explained away the necessity for God. That our current culture reinforces and emphasizes a secular worldview that has done away with all necessity concerning that of God. Growing up as a child, you may remember singing a song. I think it's one of the most common, popular Christian songs ever written. In fact, I will only begin to just with a few words, and I bet you all of you could jump in. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the... Okay, next time we'll put it up on the uh, overhead. That was pretty good. There's a new song that is being written, though, today, and sung by many. And fortunately, it's also being sung within the church. It goes a little bit like this. Jesus is nonsense, this I know, for the world tells me so. Jesus is nonsense, this I know, for the world tells me so. The title of my message this morning is, For the World Tells Me So. And we are going to be looking at this last objection. Has the world done an adequate job at explaining away the necessity for God? We see it here in the United States of America. As we continuously try to sterilize our culture, our society from any remembrance of Judeo-Christian values. You've seen it over the years. The Ten Commandments being removed from everything. Any kind of religious artifact that is found on public land had to be removed from crosses to doves to menorahs, whatever it may be. We want nothing to do with God. For the secular worldview, it is now a certainty that God has been done away with. He has been explained away sufficiently And therefore, we no longer have to be subjugated to Him. 
As they quoted in their research, it says that many of these ideas are initiated, promoted, and reinforced by celebrity personalities and media exposure. There has arisen a new setrum of anti-religious celebrity apologists that include Bill Maher, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawkins, Peter Singers, Woody Allen, Philip Roth, Julia Sweeney, and the late Christopher Hitchens. It's a chicken-or-the-egg conundrum to identify which came first, the atheist, celebrity, or an uptick in the number of atheists currently in the United States of America. Whatever the case, atheism has shifted in the past 50 years from a, a cultural anathema to something the cooler kids are doing. Have we explained God away in our secular worldview? Today, many who find themselves as skeptic, we discover that if we analyze the demographic, we find that many of them are younger. Skeptics today are on average younger than they were in the past. 20 years ago, 18% of skeptics were under 30 years old. Today, that proportion has nearly doubled to 34%. Nearly one quarter of the total U.S. population, 23%, compared to 17% in 1991. By the same token, the proportion of skeptics who are 65 and older has been cut in half, down to just 7% of the segment. Yeah, because as you get older, you look forward to God. Trust me. But they're also more educated today. Today, skeptics tend to be better educated than in the past. Two decades ago, one-third of the skeptics were college graduates, but today, half of the group has a college degree. So as we progress through our educational system here in the United States of America, we are outputting atheist after atheist after atheist because the meta-narrative that the educational system has adopted, that means the overall arching uh, understanding of this world, this meta-narrative tells us that there is no God. And so everything that happens underneath that reflects that meta-narrative where you and I as believers, our meta-narrative tells us that there is a God. And everything underneath that then reflects the reality of that overarching narrative. And in the process of eliminating God through many of our secular institutions, in fact, we have established that if you are truly going to be intellectual here in our culture today, you have to dismiss God. It's not open for discussion any longer. There's no way that you can uh, work intelligently under the meta-narrative that there is a God and He exists. You can't do it. And that is a real trouble when I talk to many college students today. They honestly believe that in the embracing of uh, of the understanding of God... They are limiting their intellectual potential. Is that true? There's been pretty smart people over the years that have been Christians, haven't there? That all of these intellects today are building upon the work that has proceeded from these men and women over the years who embraced God dearly 
and yet were able to further their areas of, of study dramatically from science to literature, whatever it may be. It's a falsehood that has been warmly embraced by our society that if you're going to be smart, if you're going to be cool, you've got to get rid of God. Today, more women than men are becoming skeptical. It is more racially diverse than ever before. And it's dispersed regionally in a more even pattern. We don't have the Bible belt any longer. We expected maybe the New England states to be more liberal or the West Coast. But today, it is more evenly dispersed amongst our nation. Before we move to address our skeptical friends who believes that the world has done an adequate job at explaining away God, you and I must have a conversation first. Before we can interact and deal intelligently with our skeptical friends who may have come to this conclusion, I think we need to have a discussion first about what's happening within the body of Christ here in America. Today, more and more, because of their biblical illiteracy and understanding the Word of God, are being swept away by this tidal wave that is moving across our nation. Especially our young people growing up in churches that have never truly equipped them to understand and to identify what a biblical worldview actually is. And when they get out into the secular culture, they're overwhelmed. And they are belittled by many of their peers because they embrace a meta-narrative that tells them that God is real. And today that is looked upon as a position of intellectual weakness. Everyone has a world view. It is the software that runs the computer which is our body. It is the mental understanding that we have of this world. As one person wrote concerning his definition of a worldview, he stated this, In the broadest sense, a worldview is that standard by which an individual consciously and unconsciously interprets all data as to maintain a consistent and coherent understanding of the whole of reality. A worldview acts like a filter in that it screens and analyzes uh, and categorizes all information so that we can make sense out of this world. It is the frame of reference from which we discern truth from falsehood, make rational decisions, and formulate ethical and religious values. Worldviews are made up of certain presuppositions and assumptions that an individual believes to be true. Everybody has a world view. One of the objections that I run into when I speak to people concerning the differences of worldview is that they believe that the worldview that the secular society is able to carry is non-static. What do, you, what do I mean by that? It's ever-changing. It can be adapted and, and, and it can be augmented by different experiences and, and different truths that are embraced around the world. It isn't stagnant. And one of the objections that they have concerning my worldview as a biblical worldview, meaning that I look at this world through the lens 
of the Scriptures. They believe that that is a static worldview, meaning it's unchangeable. There's no room for compromise within it. They feel that how can you develop in your wisdom, how can you develop in your knowledge, in your intellect, if you have a static worldview that is incapable of changing? That's a good question. And here's my answer. How can you have a worldview that is changing and know what is true from false is a question that I would pose to them first. Secondly, how can you have a worldview that dismisses reality itself? What do you mean by that, they say? Well, you may feel that your worldview is evaluating the reality in which you live, but I say to you that the dismissal of God doesn't leave you with reality at all. It all begins with God. Understanding Him allows us to understand the world in which we live. It is the only prism in which we can look through that adequately uh, defines and articulates for you and I what this world is truly all about. And of course, this is where we would differ. But understand that the worldview that the secular community has is a changing one. It is allowed to be modified and augmented. And they will say that this is a byproduct of being open-minded. And again, how many times have I been accused of being closed-minded? Because my meta-narrative does not change, for God is there from beginning to end. My, my worldview doesn't change because the scriptures don't change. The only time that my worldview may change is when I get a better understanding of what the scriptures say. But for them, well, how could you ever progress in your intellect and wisdom if you are so close-minded? And I say the same to them. How can you progress in your intellectual and wisdom when you're so open-minded that nothing stays in there? It just falls out in one ear and out the other. But today many Christians are allowing this world to shape their worldview. Why? Because of biblical illiteracy, which is at epidemic proportions in the United States of America. We don't know our Bibles any longer. And churches are not doing anything to really help reinforce or to contradict that fact. In fact, they're perpetuating it by dismissing the Bible regularly. I just read an article from a prominent pastor here in the United States of America where he is now convinced that he better serves his congregation by not quoting the Bible on Sunday mornings. That's where we're going. It tells us we really don't believe God's Word. First question for you this morning. Do you believe God's Word? See how many? Yeah, absolutely, Pastor. Now I'm going to ask you again. This time I don't want you to say anything. Do you really believe God's Word? Think about it. Say, well, I'm not sure. I think I do. How can I tell? What do you do? Can you demonstrate your Christian faith simply by your actions? Is your body under the subjection of the Scripture empowered by the Holy Spirit? 
Because I will tell you, the one thing that the secular community has up on us is that they live out their worldview, don't they? But too many Christians are no longer living out their biblical worldview. First of all, they don't know what the Bible says. Second of all, they're not living it out in their lives. So I ask you again, do you really believe the Word of God? Because if you do, then you are challenged to the core of your essence to ask yourself, why am I not living out my faith as God would have me live out my faith? Why am I passive about what God has called evil and I am no longer passionate about what God calls righteousness? We have to ask ourselves that question. Is it possible that we are being conformed into the image of the world so subtly that we don't even realize it? Is it possible that our worldview has changed and we have in actuality adopted more of a secular worldview than a biblical worldview? And maybe not overtly, but maybe it is starting to become evident in some of the most key aspects of our lives. What are those key aspects? Our manhood, our womanhood, our relationships and our marriages, the way we handle our finances, the way we parent our children, the way we occupy our time, what we strive for, what motivates us, what we have deemed important. Have they been led by this world and the thinking of this world? Or have they been led by Christ and His Word? This is something that every Christian has to struggle with in and of themselves. Again, we are simply trying to answer the question, do I really believe God's Word? Do I really believe in God? Because if we do, that belief is going to radically change the way we live our lives It's going to require us the abandonment of ourselves. It's going to require us to uh, crucify pride and adopt humility. It's going to cause us to live under a new banner of truth. Not my will be done, Lord, but your will be done. That's the manner in which Christianity radically affects the life of the individual. My flesh wants to do this. The world says it's okay, but God says no, and I want to honor and glorify Him with every aspect of my body, my living, my mind, and my heart. Abandon it all. But have we become justifiers of sin? Have we allowed a secular worldview to creep in to allow us to redefine right and wrong, and our pursuits, and our priorities, etc. Before we can address the worldview of the world, we must address the worldview of the Christian. For the worldview of the world is shaped by their perceptions and personal experiences, and it contains the philosophy and the wisdom of this age. 
governed by the God of this world, the ruler of this world, which is the devil himself. But for you and I who are in Christ Jesus, we have a different mandate. It needs to be the Word of God. In one of the most theologically saturated books of the Bible, the book of Romans, uh, we discover two verses that I believe every Christian should memorize. One of my favorite pastors and commentators, Warren Wordsby, committed these two verses to memory as a child when he was growing up. Because he grew up believing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And as a result of that reality, he memorized and lived by these two verses. He said he put them everywhere he possibly could to constantly remind him of the reality and the nature of these two verses. These were two verses that he lived by his entire life. Let's read these together. Paul writing, concluding one of the most dynamic books written on the mercy and the grace of God. He comes to chapter 12, verse 1. He says to his readers, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. We need to embrace this. This is the proper response to a true understanding of all that Christ has done for you in the process that we know as salvation. The church has done a very, very poor job at reminding Christians of the reality of the theology in which they saved them and then our, what is only our reasonable response to knowing that. And it's allowed for a vacuum. It's allowed for everything else to occur. It's allowed for, again, a blank in the space of a person's life to be filled with what the world has to offer. Today in America, we see that Christianity is no longer favored amongst most, though most claim to be Christians. It's kind of an oxymoron in and of itself. They embrace the parts of Christianity that they like. They dismiss the parts that they do not like. Many Christians are like that also. And as the secular worldview grows even stronger in its prominence here in the United States of America... Many believe today that what we see occurring in our country is something that has been seen around the world. It's a progression of persecution like we've seen never before. It's, persecution is going to have to be a reality if we truly, truly understand our Christian faith. All those who live, desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. A promise of God that, again, I have not seen on many t-shirts, salt and pepper shakers, 
refrigerator magnets, etc. It is a promise of Scripture that as we decide to live godly and righteously, we will suffer persecution. The world hated him, the world will hate us. For the last 200 years, we've enjoyed favor here in this nation, and that favor is now dissipating rapidly. Christianity is going to look more biblical here in the United States of America than it ever has before, especially considering the contrast between the secular society and the Christian society within it. But we must be aware that as persecution begins, it doesn't happen overnight. You don't go immediately to physical persecution. It's a progression that has been well documented in many of the scenarios that have been evaluated and studied throughout history where persecution began. I think it's imperative that you and I know that this progression has already started. And let me explain. The first step, in, in the persecuting of a group is to stereotype the targeted group. To stereotype means to repeat without variation, to take a quality or observation of a limited number of generalizations uh, to it, describing the whole group in its entirety. It involves a simplified and standardized concept, conception or a view of a group based on the observation of a limited sample size. Basically what they're saying is that all Christians are the same. How many times have you heard that from someone in, in objection? All Christians are the same. Or have you been called something like Oh, the the Christians like the Westboro Baptist Christians down in Florida that are so radically outside of their understanding of Christianity and their pursuit of righteousness through self-righteous manners. It's appalling to me what they do. But I've been identified in that group by some. So the first thing persecution does it stereotypes everybody in one big bucket call yourself a christian you must be like those kind of christian that's happened here in the united states of america number two vilifying the target group for alleged crimes or misconducts as the stereotyping grew in intensity christians who did not toe the line in the cultural revolution were described as listen to this close-minded harmful to human dignity and freedom, intolerant, hateful, bigoted, unfair, homophobic, reactionary, and just plain mean and basically bad people. How many times have you heard Christians described by those words here in the United States of America? So we've already fulfilled the first two stages. The third stage is marginalizing the target's group role in society. Now again, these are general parameters for the persecution of any group of people. But notice how this is being fulfilled in our culture. Marginalizing the target group's role in society, having established the false premise that the church and the faith are very bad and evil and harmful to human dignity and freedom, the critics proceed in the next stage to relegate the role of the church Uh, to its margins of society. Meaning, it's okay if you do what you do. 
They begin to marginalize us. But don't affect us. Don't come here. Don't bring that here. And they try to displace any type of um, cultural integration that we might have at that time. They push us out of that. Is that not happening? I think the worst thing you can do in politics right now is tell people you're a Christian. But that leads to the fourth. Criminalizing the target's group or its works. Do we not see that already taking place? As they slowly pass legislation that would curtail our religious freedoms? And lastly, the all outright persecuting the target group outright. If the current trends continues, this is the commentator's conclusion, Christians, especially religious leaders, may not be far from facing heavy fines and or incarceration within the next five years. That was their evaluation of the United States of America. Now, with this kind of opposition, with this kind of pressure from the world to conform, we have a choice. We are going to retreat. We are going to compromise, and we are going to allow the world to conform us into its image, or we are going to continue to allow God to transform us from the inside out. But know this, that that continuous transformation will lead you into righteousness and godliness, and all those who desire godliness will suffer persecution. Something we really got to think about. But Paul, at the end of his letter, comes to this conclusion. Eleven chapters of some of the most theologically rich uh, passages of our text, the Bible itself. And then he asks his reader to consider, in the light of all that you have heard, the word appealed there was once a word used, beseech, I beg of you to consider and to respond And he calls us brothers, showing that he is one who has also been in the light of the understanding of all that Christ has done for him. And he has concluded that by the mercies of of God, in the wake of the mercies of God, in the wake of our salvation in Jesus Christ, how shall you respond? His conclusion The only way we could respond to understanding fully all that God has done for us is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And the word present there means to offer. It is to come to God on a daily basis and say, not my will, but your will be done. To offer yourself in a position of holiness, which is then acceptable or pleasing to God as he then leads to which is your spiritual worship. Today, many American Christians have confined worship to this very small understanding of coming and singing a song. But worship of God throughout the Bible was always more comprehensive than that. It means laying down before God that which is the most valuable to you on a daily basis. What do you value so much? What is the most important thing that you value? And God says, are you willing to lay that down before me? 
For most people, it is themselves. The most valuable thing is themselves. Will you lay yourself down before me? Many don't realize what Romans has articulated for us. Let me just read for you quickly the points that I discovered in reading the 11 chapters this week. We have been... We've learned that justification from guilt and the penalty of sin has been provided in the person of Jesus Christ. That my sin has been dealt with at the cross. I then realize that my adoption into Jesus and the identification with Christ has led me to become an heir and a child of God. I've been placed under grace and no longer subjected to the law. I was given the Holy Spirit to live within me, to allow me to live out the Christian faith as God so desires me to. I've been given the promise of help in even my greatest times of affliction, Paul writes. I've, given the, I've been given the assurance of a standing in God's election that I cannot be moved from His hands. Nothing can take me from His hands. I have confidence in the coming glory. I have confidence of no separation from the love of God. I have confidence in God's continued faithfulness towards me in Christ Jesus. Now realizing all of that, all under the umbrella of being shown the mercies of God, and as being shown the mercies of God, I have been given all of that. The question is now, how do I respond? Paul says there's only one thing I can do. And that is to present myself a living sacrifice before the Lord. To offer our bodies. And that word bodies there in the Greek is a totality totality of one's life. It means not just our physical works, but our heart and our mind also. To love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it means. And living as a sacrifice day by day by day. In the Old Testament, sacrifices needed to die so someone else could live. Jesus died so we could live for Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. The life described as pure and acceptable is pure and pleasing to God. Unstained from moral imperities. Guys, we have to clean up a little bit. We have to use more discretion in what we watch. I think we justify a little bit too much, don't you? What we listen to. Not that we can't. We're free in Christ. But you know what? I gave the devil too many years of my life already. Why give him any more? If we're going to live full on for Jesus Christ, we've got we to really look at what we're doing with our lives. You know, what we're doing behind closed doors, what we're doing behind the keyboard on the internet. We need to evaluate every aspect of our lives and say, is it God honoring? Why? Because of the grace of God, the mercies of God have led us to this freedom. Why not uh, capture all of it? Why not capitalize on it all and be free from all of those things that kept you into bondage before? Is there something you're doing in life, taking or consuming, that allows you to cope day by day? That's what the Spirit of God is for. God wants us to be free of these things, man. He doesn't want us in these things anymore. He wants us to be free in Him, pure and pleasing to Him. 
And remember, even though no one knows what we do, we do behind closed doors, there's always someone watching, isn't it? That's the truth, man. We need to get real. We need to just say, Lord, forgive us, man. Sometimes I think we need to get on our face before God and just repent. Just say, Lord, forgive me of my selfishness. Forgive me of my pride. Forgive me, Lord, for this indiscretion against you. Took your son to the cross to pay for. Come on, man, we got to get right. And look what he says here. It's only your spiritual worship. Don't come here thinking that you're just going to raise your hands and sing a, a great song and say, I've worshiped God. No, worship is day by day by day by day. It's lifting holy hands before the Lord, it's like that individual praying before God. And the, right, the self-righteous person praying next to him, and the self-righteous person says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like him. How many of us come to church like that? Comparing ourselves to someone else. Maybe you had a rough week. You come in and you see someone who's had a rougher week. Or you know someone who's struggling worse than you're struggling. And all of a sudden you feel better about yourself. Stop it. The standard is perfection. It's Christ's purity. It's holiness. And that sinner that just stood there, Lord, I can't even pray. Forgive me, a sinner as I. Who did God hear? Sometimes I think we need to be broken before the Lord to truly understand where we stand before the Lord. If we want to understand worship, we have to understand Genesis 22. As Abraham uses that word to describe what he is about to do by sacrificing his only son, the son of promise, the one that was going to bring about all that God had promised to them. And what did God do? Saw Abraham's faithfulness, he was about to execute, and all of a sudden God interceded and said, Abraham, what you are about to do, I am going to do. See, God is not asking anything of you that he hasn't done for you already. Even when it comes to our love for him, we love him because he first loved us. God's always the initiator. So when God says, lay down your life before me as a living sacrifice, do we know of an incident in history where God laid down his life as a human sacrifice? Yes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Just this week I heard Tony Evans tell a great story that really I think captures all of this. He, was in a, he says he was in a church, and as they were passing the offering plate, a little girl took the offering plate, put it down on the floor in front of her chair, and then stood in it. And they asked her, what are you doing? And she said, I learned in Sunday school that I needed to be a living offering unto God. I love that. This is what we need to do, guys. Okay, we need to be really honest with ourselves because I think we have become a little too self-convincing that we are something that we are not actually. Now, all of this is the precursor for what we are about to read next. He is determined that I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I can just imagine Paul writing these words. By the mercies of God, everything we've learned up until this point to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is it. This is where it all counts. This is your reasonable service, meaning it doesn't make any sense to do any less. That's what he's saying here. 
And then he goes on, explaining on how we do this. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world's world view. Conformed, it means to be molded into shape. That's what the world does to people. It, for their outward pressures from the outside, the world takes an individual and molds it into the person that it wants it to be. Often in the process, destroying the person completely. How many lives are being destroyed by this world? How many individuals have come to places in their hearts and in their minds in such great despair and depression that their best way out is to end it all? See, the world doesn't care what the cost or the totality of its conformity uh, plays on you. It doesn't care. I don't care if it kills you. You're going to be like us to conform you into the image of this world through its worldview. As one wrote, he said in this Greek word, the form or to mold one's behavior in accordance with a particular pattern or set of standards. To shape one's behavior, to conform one's life. Do not shape your behavior to the standards of this world. That's what the world is trying to do. And it does it in two ways. It does it mentally and it does it physically. Paul told us to be very careful concerning the wisdom of this world, which is pure foolishness to God. He said, secondly, be careful of the philosophies of this world that will cheat and rob you from all that God has for you. There's the mental aspects. As he wrote concerning the philosophies, Paul writes this. See that no one takes you captive. It's an interesting word. By philosophy and empty deceits according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head and of all rule and authority. Meaning, you don't need anything but Jesus, man. That's what he's saying here. Now, you know how radical that sounds today? Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not dismissing medical care. I'm not dismissing legal help. I'm saying that for our Christian lives, all that we need is Jesus Christ. Or when Paul wrote further about the wisdom of God or the world, he says, listen to this. Where is the one who is wise? I love that question. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? The Richard Hawkins, Christopher Hutchins. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. They're never going to discover him there. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demanded a sign, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen to that. Or as the Solomon wrote in the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That's where it all begins. 
So conformity can take place mentally through the wisdom of this world and the philosophies of this world. The wisdom of this world and the philosophies of this world must always be brought into subjection of the Word of God. But do you know your passions can conform you into this world also? Listen to what Peter says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear fear throughout your time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from such a futile way and inherit um, from futile ways inherited from your forefathers but not with perishable things such as gold and silver but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot he was forsaken before the foundations of the world but was made manifest in these last times for your sake who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. As Peter's encouraging these exiles that have been driven from their homes there in Jerusalem and they are now about the regions of Asia Minor, they are separated, they are by themselves, they are isolated. He says, now more than ever, do not allow your former passions to conform you into its image. The passions of one's body must again be subjugated to the Spirit of God in all things. The world tells us certain physical actions are okay. Sex before marriage is okay. Sexual acts before marriage is okay. Not according to the Bible. You can't go anywhere without being inundated with sex. Today, the world is perfectly acceptable with the viewing of pornography. The Bible says, no way, pornography is a sin before God. And if you don't know this, please know this. Pornography will destroy you from the inside out. It'll erode every rational understanding of sexuality that you may have that the Bible offers. Pornography will eliminate altogether. If you are married and you are viewing pornography, it will destroy your relationship with your wife or your husband. Please understand that. Cry out to God and ask for freedom from pornography because it will destroy your relationships with your spouses, with your kids, etc. It must be dealt with. The passions of our bodies conforming us into the image of this world if these passions are not brought under the subjugation of Jesus Christ. But look at what Paul says here. Because there's a don't, and it's followed by a do. I don't want you to be conformed to this world, but transformed. I want you to be renewed from the inside out. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Christianity promises a renewal. Not a renewal that has to be brought about by your uh, applying it, or your personal self-devotion or your self-discipline deriving, derived from yourself, Christianity says that once you become a Christian, 
You are a new creation in Christ. The Spirit of God dwells within you, and through that, the Spirit changes you from the inside out. And oftentimes, those things that we so desire to do, we no longer desire to do. And those things we desire to do that we shouldn't do, the Spirit of God then steps in to give us ability, supernatural ability, above and beyond ourselves, to make sure that we can eliminate that object from our life, that sin from our life, etc. It's a continuous state. Here in the Greek, this transformation to change the essential form or nature of something, to become or to, be, to change or to be changed into or to be transformed into. God is working in you and he's going to, it's going to pour out on the outside and you're going to be a brand new person. The Greek word um, parallels that of metamorphosis and the best way to describe that is caterpillar turning into a butterfly. My wife and daughter are obsessed with caterpillars. We have a Tupperware dish on our dining room. It's probably too much information for you. And it's filled with little baby caterpillars that they hope one day will become butterflies. Now they keep disappearing. I don't know where. That's troubling in and of itself. Some are saying, oh, we're not going to go to pastor's house. He's got bugs. (laughs) But what a remarkable thing that this little tiny squirmily thing can be changed into a butterfly by the process of evolution. That's what silliness. What silliness. That's what God's doing to you. Before you were a Christian, you were just a squirmy little thing that he loved. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's turning you into a magnificent butterfly. If you're a guy, you're a butterfly with tribal patterns on your wings. <laughs> okay, got to be a little tougher there. You know, okay. Guys were like, eh, butterfly, really? Is that the best you could do, Pastor? Can't I be a praying mantis? You know, or something like that. But what an incredible work to see. He wants you to be changed from the inside out. That's what God does. Listen to what his word says. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Or as Paul, writing in Ephesians 4, stated to those who desired to live as they lived once before, He says in verse 20, But that is not the way you have learned Christ, to continue to live as you have, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. He says, Put off the old self, which belongs to your formal manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and pleasures, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in holiness. We are transformed, notice what he says here in his word, notice how he goes here, by the renewing or the renewal of your mind. This is where we begin to think differently. How many of you as a Christian now think differently that you, now that you are a Christian? We, all, we should all, hands up. Yeah, we think differently. And through the renewal of our minds and our hearts, through the Spirit of God, we are transforming into the image of Christ. 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to answer one little question as we close. Many Christians still desire, what is God's will for my life? His will for your life is found right here. That is to be a living sacrifice for God. This is where it all begins. Everything else plays through this. This allows you to position yourself before God for Him to call upon you and to use you for His glory. This is where it all begins. As one wrote, he says this, As a Christian is transformed in his mind and is made more like Christ, he comes to approve and desire God's will, not his own for his own life. Then he discovers that God's will is what is good for him, and that it pleases God and completes him in every way. It's all that he needs. But only by being renewed spiritually can a believer ascertain and do and enjoy the will of God. I asked you before, how much do you believe? Do you really believe God? Do you really believe the Bible? This is really important for our discussion going forward if we're going to deal with our skeptical friends. Why? Because one of the greatest ways you are going to win them to Jesus Christ, and history has demonstrated this over and over and over again, it is when Christians were allowed themselves to be persecuted by the world and they showed Christ throughout that period of persecution. Think of Paul himself. When Stephen was being stoned, he cried out and he said, Forgive them, wanting to imitate his Lord, for they know not what they do. Receive me into your hands. Paul the Apostle was standing there. He was watching it and he saw it happen and he couldn't deny that something supernatural was happening in Stephen's life. If you think for a moment that we are going to win our secular friends, our skeptical friends, by conforming to this world, you are out of your minds. It's never going to happen. All they are going to do is they're going to ascertain that they have won because they have persuaded you away from your worldview into a position of compromise. But if you stick to your guns and you allow yourself to be persecuted for Christ's sake, you allow yourself to be hated for Christ's sake, they will take notice. I challenge you, to read the Word of God and to notice how the persecution of Christians, I believe, propelled it to the point that the Roman emperor had to do something about it. And Constantine finally discovered that he couldn't beat it. It didn't matter what he did. He didn't matter if he imprisoned them or killed them or burned them. This thing wasn't going to stop. Because they truly believe God. That's why I asked you the question. You are not going to be willing to suffer persecution at the hand of a secular world if you don't truly believe in God and the Bible. Right? You're going to abandon it. You're going to give up. You're going to lay down. But to solidify yourself at that moment requires you to prepare yourself day by day as a living sacrifice. You're already prepared to sacrifice everything, aren't you? So if it finally comes, you've already prepared yourself for it. We can't even talk about our skeptical friends until we first address ourselves. How much do you believe what you say you believe? That's the question I ask and leave you with this morning. Because a new song is being sung, isn't it? Jesus is nonsense, for this I know, for the world tells me so. But I believe 
Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so.